0: Welcome, Interiors lovers, to the Daniel House Book Club. I'm Peter Spalding, the CCO or Chief Creative Officer of Daniel House Club, and I'll be your host. Together, we're journeying through the eight books every Interiors lover should have read according to Architectural Digest, and we're learning so much. Thus far, we've covered the decoration of houses, the house in good taste, the interaction of color, 1,000 chairs, and now we're working our way through Mark Hampton on decorating before we get into today's sections on plans and rooms let me give you a little plug for the daniel house club if you're an interior designer and you've spent any time specifying furniture for your clients you know two things it can be very profitable and it can also be a hellacious nightmare you do anything to avoid but the profits make it difficult to avoid so you buckle up and do the hard work of forming the right vendor relationships attempting to hit minimum orders to procure helpful pricing with enough manufacturers to put whole houses together. Then you place your orders, and you spend the rest of your waking, sometimes unbillable hours tracking hundreds of packages as they circulate the globe. You wonder when will death come, and you hope it's soon. Now, though, you just have to visit danielhouse.club, become a member, and enjoy really great pricing across more than 100 vendors you never have to worry about hitting minimums to keep your pricing and what's more you don't have to follow up with 100 reps to figure out where your pieces are we track everything for you we offer a variety of shipping options nationwide including white glove and the pricing is always just 10 percent of your order for standard curbside delivery just the other day one of our members ordered 93 items across 22 different vendors Instead of contacting each company individually, she just pressed complete order, and we began the heavy lifting from there. Best of all, because she's a Pro Plus member, she purchased everything at 20, 50% off, so she has plenty of room to make money and, on work that used to take weeks, and still extend a discount from retail to her clients. It does, doesn't get much better than that. Visit danielhouse.club and become a member today. Okay. Today we're covering legendary decorator Mark Hampton's thoughts on plans, meaning floor plans and furniture plans, and the various um, uh, strategies of handling certain types of rooms. Like I said last week, I'm really excited to look at how he handles plans, because I think this is a critical element of the design of any space that really could use more thought, um, both from homeowners owners, and sometimes from designers. Houses and their homes, are never going to feel fully comfortable unless their doors windows and fireplaces are properly located if these aren't in the right place this is where the designer's job begins uh, i just went to visit the likely potential new house of an architect friend of mine it's a charming little vaguely craftsman house with a familiar floor plan for that style a small entry hall to one side, opening right into a living room with a large front-facing window on one wall, a central hearth opposite the entry, and a giant gaping hole um, opening into the equally sized dining room where uh, a fourth wall might be nice. She's a well-trained, experienced, and talented architect, so I know she'll make it wonderful, but she, w- she was kind enough to ask for my thoughts. I said, you might not like this, but the first thing I'd do is skinny up that opening between the living room and the dining room. She immediately sensed, uh, and possibly was already thinking about this herself, um, that this would give her some place other than right beneath the front window to put a sofa and a pair of chairs, and she said she loved that idea, but um, asked if I would center the opening or pull it to one side. Often, I do like openings to one side, but in this house, I think the choice to center the newly decreased opening is obvious for one simple reason. Beyond the dining room is another approximately equally sized volume where the kitchen lives. The door to the kitchen is centered on the dining room wall opposite the opening of the living room, which is opposite the big window on the front of the house. Another door at the rear of the kitchen, aligned with the dining room door, carries you right out into the backyard, which is the whole reason she's interested in the house to begin with. So she has the opportunity to create the enfilade layout Hampton begins his section on plans listing the merits of. She can create a through line from one end of her property to the other, and the outcome will be expansive. And we actually talked about this a little bit again last night, and I'll say she felt that that was bad feng shui, and she's probably right. Um, But... I'm not totally convinced feng shui is something that necessarily needs to be considered in this style of house, and I'm sure many, many people disagree with me. Um, anyway, so what is enfilade? Uh I think Hampton tells us it means um, being strung together uh, like on a string of beads or something. I'm not quoting that exactly right. Um, but... If you've ever visited European palaces, you've likely encountered this procession of rooms where doors, all in alignment with one another, carry you from one room to the next like you're on a parade route, and there's no hallway between these rooms. And sometimes this stands out as odd when you're proceeding through one bedroom into the next, or from sitting room to sitting room, each which clearly once had a distinct purpose, but which... the Purpose is not really any longer familiar with us, so it's sort of confusing that we're going through one room after the next after the next that all sort of feel like they might be doing the same thing. Um, But the experience of standing at the very first of these thresholds on your parade route often allows you to see all the way to the very end of the house. So while you don't take in all the distinct experiences the place has to offer, you have a sense that they exist. There's sort of a gravitational pull to the whole place, and a feeling of vastness that simply um, pulls you because you know something lies beyond. So Hampton explains this method of organizing spaces became outmoded in the 19th century as houses began to have more and more servants and hallways became necessary to maintain privacy. He also credits the plan's demise with efforts to reduce drafts as mechanical heating came into play. Now, though, almost no one has servants, and we have very advanced heating technology, so drafts never have to be a concern. So lining up doorways and window openings in succession, whether centrally or to one side of a set of rooms, has a ton of historical precedence and makes sense for the way we live today. It is a great method to gain that sense of openness everyone craves without getting rid of distinct spaces. After establishing enfilade as a great method to organize a home's spaces, Hampton focuses his attention on rooms that will host social gatherings. The arrangement of private rooms, he says, can be particular to the individual needs the individual's needs, but rooms where a variety of people will be entertained in a variety of ways require more thought. Comfort, Hampton says, is much bigger than how a chair cradles the body or how well a light illuminates the pages we read. It has to do with how all the components come together. He says the goal is to create rooms where conversations can flourish. These are places where guests feel immediately at home and would prefer to sit rather than stand. They are comfortable to the eye before any physical comfort is even attempted. And I'll say, I had my own living room laid out a bunch of ways before people naturally came in and sat down. So um, this is a challenge, and you'll notice once it's finally right, because they will just automatically come in and take a seat and stay a while. Rooms that possess this quality of being comfortable at first glance can only really occur with use. Too often, in order to avoid criticism, homeowners furnish the most important room of their house in a mean sort of stage-set way, and they never use it because they've made all the other rooms of their house so much more to their liking. This special one is just not comfortable them, to them at all. So as you set out to create the room so often central to the home both figuratively and literally you have to be honest with yourself about what you or your client is actually going to do there if you are going to make lots of people comfortable ideally according to Hampton they'll have to have at least three seating groups that can expand and contract these groups will be made up of chair types of varied seat and arm height shape firmness, and importantly, weight. Some of the pieces will be relatively stationary, like sofas and club chairs, while others, like benches, stools, and slipper chairs, will scoot around at a moment's notice as people drift in and out of conversation. In any case, we should start with either a room's primary function or its most obvious focal point as the impetus for our design. But there are two cases we tend to encounter most frequently. The first is finding a room's focal point, usually the fireplace, along one of its long walls. In this case, the furniture often ends up in the center of the room, with spaces at either end that are just a little too small to furnish easily. In rooms like this, Hampton says it can be perfectly fine to have a comfortable reading chair with a large side table and lamp off on their own for solitary reading. Preferable, but less frequent, is the room with a fireplace on an end wall. In these rooms, two equal halves of the room can be used for really generous seating groups. Whatever the circumstance you face, the best, most cozy place for reading and conversation is by the hearth, so it's smart not to interrupt this by placing a TV in the middle of this sort of prime real estate in the room, unless you can obscure it in a way so that it's not obvious that it's there when it's not in use. Lighting that's too dim is annoying, Hampton says, but too much lighting is equally bad. Uh, Not every chair needs its own light. Better just figure out where the best reading chairs are and light those really well. If you're not going for real comfort, or I'm sorry, if you are going for real comfort, tucked beneath a generous side table next to the reading chair, it's really nice to find another shorter table because, he says, when you're relaxed a table that's about 24 inches off the ground is easier to reach than the more average 28 to 31 inches if you really want people to be comfortable coffee tables should be the sort that you can kick your feet up on Ottomans are nice and can match their chairs but they don't have to match you do not have to sacrifice style for comfort as long as you prioritize a good degree of realism about how the room will actually be used If you're a designer, it is helpful to work with people who love what you love. You can become a decorating team then, and the development of your client's home continues long after you've completed the job. If they collect things you find compelling, these can be jumping off points for entire schemes rather than tense conversations about how the new thing they just acquired is at odds with what you're trying to create for them. This makes the plans easy. As you're considering how rooms connect, thinking about the merits of particular types of rooms and how they make, how to make them really work is helpful. Hampton begins with what's so special about small rooms? He says people seem always preoccupied with making things seem bigger, but vast space isn't nearly as important as successful space. The inherent good of small rooms is that they can be incredibly cozy and they can be economical to complete well. Rather than furnishing a small bedroom sparsely with small furniture, Hampton recommends filling it with large, architectural, commodious pieces like a canopy bed, multiple chairs, and perhaps a good-sized table or desk. To counterbalance all this mass, he suggests an abundant use of pattern and plenty of personal art of varied scale. All this has the potential to create a sumptuous cocoon one may never wish to leave. Small hallways are another place where ample decoration has a great impact, and Hampton talks about selecting sort of mannered, witty pieces for these spaces that are all about moving through. Funny pieces we might grow tired of in the living room where we sit and stare at them all the time will delight us as we briefly pass by them in the hallway. While small rooms can easily be made very special, some rooms are actually too big, especially primary bedrooms. He'd always argue for a suite of rooms instead of a very large bedroom with several cupboard-like doors opening into it. We've heard this from all the previous authors we've read, and based on new houses I've seen, this message actually seems to have gotten across. Some of the pieces of the suite have now grown to a crazy proportion, but in my experience, it's not the bedroom That's getting really out of scale. Rarely do I encounter a new house where a wall of closets open directly into the space that's meant for sleeping. Hampton wasn't a proponent of huge kitchens or baths either, finding the former inefficient unless you had a cook and a few servants, and the latter sort of chilling, feeling the need to get dressed before crossing the vast space from, say, the shower to the vanity. I have a lot of kitchen clients tell me how much storage they need, but then I open their cabinets and they're just a total mess. There are fabulous cooks who prepare their food in pocket-sized kitchens, so I remain a little skeptical of this need too. Hampton's favorite rooms are libraries, and he mentions one library where the built-in bookcases actually come into the room at right angles to the walls. We find this arrangement a lot in wonderful old collegiate libraries, too, where it creates intimate interstitial spaces for study. But an example I have personally experienced that feels similar to the Delano and Aldrich house he's referencing is in the Villanecchi in Milan there are a pair of perpendicular bookcases maybe seven or eight feet tall um which create an intimate space in a room that's actually 12 or 14 feet tall and maybe like 48 or 50 feet long it's a room within a room that feels both definitely a part of the overall but also completely separate it's a really brilliant way to get some storage and also to manipulate the space to have some part that's cozy and some part that's really expansive. If you don't carry your bookcases all the way to the ceiling, like in this case, you need to be careful about the proportion of space between the top of the bookcases and the ceiling. There needs to be room for interesting objects to be placed on top, like um, maybe vases or sculpture or art. As you design your bookcases, you might be carrying them all the way to the floor, which is fine. Um, Or, they could have closed cupboards uh, in the lower portion of the bookcase, and the, the cupboard top could either align with the height of a windowsill or with that of a writing desk, which is about 31 inches or less. Higher than this, though, throws everything out of proportion, and Hampton explains that even antique break fronts with taller cabinet bases are less valuable than those with much lower cabinet bases. Those closed cabinets really act as the base for a room, and in classical architecture, bases are actually related to the scale of a human being. So we tend to sense this sort of error pretty viscerally, even if the only way we express it is by having a vague preference for a space where such a mistake has not been made. Hampton also makes an argument for bookcases that are 45 or 60 inches tall, and despite the fact that I've Never personally loved these. I'm sure he made them work beautifully. Um, So that might be an option to explore too. Anymore, as the cities we occupy become denser and denser, we opt to forego a guest room altogether and send our guests to a hotel. But if you are someone who has overnight guests, or if your clients are, Hampton says, this guest bedroom is not a space you can say, I like it, so the hell with it. This room has to be one that brings pleasure to a wide array of people immediately. It should be positioned in a home's floor plan so that guests don't feel like they're intruding on the most intimate quarters of the house. It can be fancy, but it should never be intimidating, and it should definitely have a desk at which a guest can sit down and do some work in private if the need arises. We should think of the design of this room as part of the whole process of entertaining. So. It could be and maybe should be a little whimsical since a visit with friends is usually kind of fun. Again, for the room to become really comfortable, you and your client or your client has to be someone who is actually given to the art of hosting well. As we move into what's special about the dining room, and Hampton begins with the proposition that it's a place for old traditions, I want to point out that I think um, staying as a guest in someone's home or inviting others to stay in your home is becoming something of an old tradition too, and I think we should work to get it back into the mainstream. Too long, as we all know, is miserable, but staying with each other is a great way to develop more intimate friendships or sever them forever if perhaps that's inevitable, and then getting that out of the way is great anyway. Okay, so the dining room is the one place where almost all people have vestiges of the past. It might be odd to some to use old things in other rooms, but in the dining room where artifacts that facilitate the process of sharing a meal together continue to be passed down through generations of a family, it seems perfectly normal. I'm pretty sure if if my friends are going to say oh that was my mother's or my grandmother's it's going to be in reference to something like their cake plate or a set of dessert bowls or maybe their dining table so i totally buy into hampton's theory here even with all this history hampton says this is the room where we can get most creative in blending contemporary stylishness with um, these traditional objects we can make opulent rooms or restrained ones or really simple ones, but he does say that it's more difficult to serve simple meals in fancy dining rooms than fancy meals in simple dining rooms. Just intuitively, I think he's right, which causes me to think that our increasingly informal meals are what put the status of this once central room in peril. Our meals very often don't work in the stiff rooms we remember from childhood, or what we perceived as stiff rooms. If you or your clients have multiple places to eat within the home, Hampton suggests considering making a dining space that is just for nighttime, something with a sense of satiating drama that sparkles as the sun goes down. It will be a place people will hope to be invited back again and again, assuming the food and company is good. He does point out that the dining room really is sort of a stage set in which the decoration is not completely done until the food is on the table and the characters have taken their seats. Finally, we arrive at his thoughts on very nice bathrooms. These are the hardest projects to undertake, he says. I can attest. It's difficult to explain exactly why these are tougher than kitchens, but I think it's that you're trying to derive symmetry, or usually you're trying to derive some kind of symmetry, out of a set of fairly large fixed objects that have to be squeezed into a relatively small footprint, and that so many different tradesmen have to be called upon to complete the job. It's no wonder some designers can make their whole careers out of kitchens and baths alone. These rooms. Can be stylistically a little bit more over the top than other rooms. Um, Things we might find indecent in another part of the house, we find perfectly welcome here. Where we might want to exude that sort of effortless, spare, hominess so central to the American psyche in our living room, say, we're fine with the sort of treat yourself attitude in the bath. It makes some sense. Not only are these private spaces. More importantly, they are probably the only places on earth we have the opportunity to quietly start and end our day in solitude. They are the place for charging up and powering down, and for someone who lived with a dumpster fire of a bathroom with no heat and cracked tile, and a shower that bilged up rusty pipe water from time to time, and now has a near perfect bath with a view of the tree canopy beyond. I can attest, the power of this luxury to make you more prepared to face the world should not be underestimated. To achieve the luxury, Hampton recommends we study the best bathrooms of a hundred years ago where they were conceived very architecturally and symmetrically. And he describes a beautiful bathroom that he created for some clients and you should definitely go read about it. Okay. I hope you all have a beautiful place to go off and enjoy a bubble bath and recharge and think about beautiful rooms. And I'll talk to you next week as we look at the final sections of this book titled Outdoors and Materials. Um, Take care and talk to you soon.